Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, we're coming back to our old friend Brexit, as the negotiations between the UK and the EU reach another climax. We're talking about the legal and the political implications of deal or no deal. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. If you enjoy listening to Talking Politics, you'll definitely enjoy reading the LRB. That's why they publish a reading list of relevant writing from the archive to accompany every episode on lrb.co.uk and also why you, Talking Politics listeners, are invited to subscribe for just £1 an issue via the URL lrb.me slash talk. That's lrb.me slash talk. Talking Politics in partnership with the London Review of Books. Today's podcast comes in two parts. First of all, I'm talking to Kenneth Armstrong, who is Professor of European Law here in Cambridge, to try and make sense of some of the complicated but really important legal questions around the current negotiations, and particularly the question of what the British government has been up to with its internal market bill, which has become one of the central sticking points. I recorded this conversation with Kenneth yesterday. Today is Wednesday. After this, I'm going to be talking to Helen Thompson and Chris Brooke about the politics, about Boris Johnson, and about Boris Johnson's Conservative Party conference speech. Maybe we should start by just trying to see if we can capture the rationale behind the internal market bill. So let's see it from the government's point of view to start with. Kenneth, what do you think that bill is designed to achieve? Or what's it designed to guard against? It's interesting, if you think about a year ago, we were we were chatting about the way in which backbenchers were hijacking legislation, the, the Ben Act, to try and constrain the government. And of course, the government complaining that this was constraining its negotiating position at an EU level. Now, with the Internal Market Bill, we've got the government hijacking its own legislation uh, with a view to trying to improve its negotiating position with the EU, particularly its concerns round about state aid rules, which it thinks are are potential kind of Trojan horses for the future uh, deal that it wants to do with with the EU. So there's there's that aspect of trying to improve its uh, negotiating position at the EU level. And I guess there's also a bit of a look over there moment in that we're all focusing our attention on these contentious aspects of the internal market bill with regard to abiding by international law obligations, etc., but actually, the, the substance of the bill itself is, is getting serious pushback from the, the devolved authorities who are worried about what it means for the exercise of their powers. So for the government, it's actually a bit of a useful distraction. So that those now notorious issues, and they're quite complicated to do with the possible breaches of international law, um, the focus is on the Northern Ireland Protocol, as I understand it. So there is a real question here whether this is just a negotiating tactic. It's a classic sort of Johnson, Cummings, whoever attempt to show we are willing to go that step further than you think we are, or whether it is a genuine safeguard for a future world in which there is no trade deal and some of the government's anxieties about what that would mean for the relationship between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK come into force. So it does make a difference whether they actually think this is 
designed to guard against the future or it's just a, a ploy. If we take them at their word and it is about a possible future where they want to guard against certain eventualities, what are the things that they're worried about? If you believe that, what do they think could go wrong in a no-deal scenario in the relationship between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK in regards to trade, if I've got that right? Yeah, I mean, I think the the, the government is worried that the, the forms of wording that were used in the Northern Ireland Protocol risk the, the possibility of the European Union kind of overreaching in its interpretation of those provisions in ways that would make it more difficult for, for the UK to pursue its own state aid policy, for example, that it will introduce um, checks on the movements of goods that it, it doesn't want to see and that it thinks would be obstacles to its, its own internal market. So in a sense, there are real anxieties about, about what might happen. But the question is, well, what do you do about those anxieties? And the government is saying, well, we need to have this mechanism in the in the legislation as a proper safeguard. And it is interesting that the government's position has shifted on this. It is now making it clear that it will only seek to invoke these provisions if the European Union itself, first of all, acts in bad faith by, as I say, overreaching what is possible under the withdrawal agreement itself. And so the government is now saying, well, we need this safeguard, but we will only use it if the EU is itself in bad faith. The problem with that argument, of course, is that the agreements themselves have their own safeguard mechanisms. There is a safeguard mechanism in the, in the Northern Ireland Protocol in, in Article 12, and the withdrawal agreement itself has a, has a wide dispute resolution mechanism. So the question would be, well, yeah, but why do you still need to have this domestic legal mechanism when your concerns can be addressed within the mechanisms you yourself have agreed to within the withdrawal agreement? So that is a good question. So that does raise for me the possibility that this is just a negotiating ploy. I mean, if it's creating safeguards for things that already have safeguards, is it not then more likely that it's just a signal as we come closer to the next cliff edge we've talked enough about cliff edges but there's another one coming up that kind of signal you know game theorists would call this you know you're signaling that you're a bit crazier than the other side would like to make them uncomfortable is that what this is i think when you think about the reaction of the eu so we know that there is this kind of formal legal proceedings that the, the commission has raised but more generally i mean people don't appear to be overly exercised by this. The negotiations are still carrying on. The negotiations haven't stalled or collapsed on the basis of the action that the UK government is taking in the UK Internal Market Act. So I think from the EU's side of things, this does look like a bit of political theatre. It has to react to it in certain ways, but I don't think it thinks it's, it's the most important thing, really. So is its reaction then more political theatre? Because the thing that's happened more recently is that the EU has said it's given the UK government a month, but it's taking this to, to law on the grounds that this is a breach of the withdrawal agreement and that there are, I guess, in theory at least, I'm not sure in practice, but in theory there are legal remedies. That's at least the implication here. Are there? If this is serious, I mean, it's still a bill, it's not law yet, but were this to become law, does the EU have legal remedies against the thought that the British government, the UK government, have acted in bad faith? 
So the EU has launched these infringement proceedings against the UK, and it's a very structured process. It has these different phases that the Commission can go through. It's not obliged to carry on with the process. And at all times, the imperative is to try and seek a resolution without the need to take the action directly before the, the Court of Justice. And that's all that the European Commission is doing. It's grinding its way through the gears of what it could ultimately end up doing. The the Commission's argument is that the UK is currently in bad is, is acting in bad faith. So it's it's using the bad faith argument this time against the UK and saying by introducing this legislation, it's going to make it very difficult, if not impossible, for the UK to, to comply with its obligations, and that is itself a breach of the, the withdrawal agreement. But for the for the the Commission, it can simply wait and see how this plays out. It will wait and see what happens in the House of Lords whether there are amendments to the bill, it's putting itself in the position that if this bill does become law, it will be in a position to then act on it. And what it could do is refer the matter to the Court of Justice and it could seek interim remedies. Now, that would be highly contentious to try and get an interim remedy to disapply a UK Internal Market Act. Now, the the Commission has a playbook it can operate to here, and that is the playbook that is used against Poland in its rule of law violations. And the Commission in the past has done exactly this, has brought proceedings against Poland, seeking interim remedies to disapply Polish legislation that it saw were, was interfering with the independence of the judiciary. So the Commission has done this in the past. It's also taken legal action against the UK early on this year for what it sees as rules on citizenship, which it doesn't think will be fully compliant with its obligations under the withdrawal agreement. So the Commission's already signalled that it is willing to take this action. That doesn't mean that it has to follow through. It has the possibility to to climb down a ladder on this. What difference does it make that when this action is taken, the UK will no longer be a member of the EU? I mean, it has these remedies, but it's seeking these remedies against a non-member. Can it do that? What would the what would be the instruments of power that it would use if the UK government says Parliament is sovereign and we can do what we like? What can the EU do? I don't get that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's helpful that the UK is currently in the transition period because in the transition period, the UK is effectively treated as if it were a member state. And the UK has agreed, it's in Article 131 of the Withdrawal Agreement, to allow the Commission to bring infringement proceedings against it for breaches of, including the Good Faith Agreement in in Article 5. So the remedies are there. But you're absolutely right. Well, what happens if we get to the end of the year? The Commission has brought these legal proceedings. It's even got a judgment of the Court of Justice. Does anybody really care at that point when the UK is outside the, fully outside of the, the transition period? In the end, what matters is what the implications are for whether there's an agreement on a future relationship. That, in the end, is the most important thing. And as I said before, at the moment, all of this political theatre round about this isn't immediately derailing the moves towards finalising that deal and getting that deal in place. So I think, in the end, that's that's the most important thing. So let's focus on that then. As we approach the, the crunch, what for you is the biggest thing at stake here? Or to put it another way, what for you is the biggest sticking point? If if it doesn't prove possible to reach a deal, and we don't know, do you think that there are genuine legal barriers in the way of that, or is it ultimately all just politics? 
There are obvious legal barriers. One is the need to get the consent of the European Parliament for the agreement, and the Parliament has said that it will not uh, ratify an agreement if the UK maintains the, the UK internal market bill provisions that would allow it to breach the, the withdrawal agreement. So that is a real obstacle. Also, if the agreement was one of such a nature that would require approval amongst the, the member states, parliaments uh, and regional parliaments, then as we saw with the, the, the Canada Free Trade Agreement in Belgium, you can find that there are hiccups along the way in making that happen. But in the end, I don't think that these are the big obstacles. In the end, the obstacle ultimately to a deal being done is existential. The UK wants to ensure that whatever deal is done is one that respects the sovereignty of the UK and its regulatory autonomy. And the same is true for the EU. It wants to ensure that any deal that is done also respects its autonomy. And the EU's great fear is that the model of the social market economy that it is, feels that it is building amongst its member states would be threatened if the UK were able to engage in, in regulatory competition with the EU or uh, distortive subsidies with the EU. And that's why the insistence on level playing field obligations, state aid rules are really quite important for the EU because it is, it's an existential issue for it as much as it is for the UK. How does that existential issue then compare with the other side of it, which is the threat that would be posed by not reaching a deal? So I think Mark Rutter of the Netherlands said that this is a geopolitical imperative, a phrase that Helen Thompson often uses on this podcast. So there's the existential question in terms of, I guess, identity, that these two political entities each see their core identity at risk if they cannot assert their autonomy over these issues of trade. And then there is the other threat, which is, were this relationship to break down? Were questions of faith and bad faith to become prominent in this relationship? It could have all sorts of knock-on consequences for not just identity, but for the security of both of these two political entities. Is that, does that make sense? I mean, is that the tension there? There's a kind of existential identity question, and then there's a geopolitical threat question. Uh, Absolutely. And I think for for both sides not to be able to reach an agreement on this would be absolutely terrible. It would be terrible for the UK because I think it will also have knock-on effects for its ability to do trade deals with the other partners that it wants to do those deals with because they will want to see that the UK was able to resolve some sort of relationship with the EU. And if that breaks down uh, with rank around about bad faith, breaches of obligations, it's not exactly the best climate in which the UK is then about to go out into the world to try and secure new new trade deals. And for the EU side of things, that the Brexit has happened at all is, of course, very difficult for it. And that it could not resolve that relationship with the UK, again, does not make it look fantastic externally. And, and therefore, it's sort of internal communications about the European Union as not just a social market economy, but as a system of values that upholds the rule of law, etc., would have to be very strong to kind of counteract just the simple negotiating failure that was at the heart of this. So there are lots of ironies here. So one of which is, when you frame it like that, it's, it, we are almost at the highest stakes moment of this whole process. And yet so much of the political heat has gone out of it, at least domestically in the UK. If you compare the temperature of this to when we were talking about prorogation 
a year ago or so, there's no comparison. And yet the stakes are as high, if not higher than ever. And then the other irony is that the internal market bill, at least ostensibly, is designed to hold the union together to make sure that Northern Ireland is not separated off. And yet, and you hinted at this earlier, it poses real threats to the union, doesn't it? It actually opens up a whole other set of issues about the relationship between the devolved governments and what is the English government here? Is the Westminster government the English government? Doesn't that then create a whole other knock-on set of possible hazards? Exactly. I mean, we, we go full circle. I mean, we, we the, the Ben Act last year because of this fear about a no-deal Brexit, when that wasn't really the, in terms of what was the, what the deal was, that was a, a no-deal about not having a withdrawal agreement, whereas now we're talking about the deal that is the, the future trade agreement with the EU. And you're absolutely right, that is an incredibly significant issue, and yet it's not getting the same degree of political attention. And what is happening is, is a distraction from, as you say, what's happening in the internal market of the United Kingdom itself. And this bill, the, the market access principles that it will enshrine in law are principles that the devolved authorities really do fear will cut across the devolution settlement, will allow the UK Parliament to enact rules, in essence, for England, but which will then have application in the other devolved nations under these principles, as well as the powers contained in the bill for the UK government to fund major infrastructure projects, etc., which, again, the devolved authorities view as cutting across their powers and responsibilities. So there is, I think, an anxiety around the UK internal market bill that we are replacing the discipline that existed under EU law, under its internal market, with a new legal discipline, but one that places a high degree of power at the centre in ways that really do cut across and intrude upon the, the devolution set, settlement. And you know, the Scottish government has already recommended to the Scottish Parliament not to give legislative consent to, to the bill. Well, of course, we know that that in itself is not something which can stop the bill going through. It can go through. But I think there will be very, very significant political repercussions within the UK. And of course, as we go into an election year next year to the the devolved parliaments. So we'll pick this up with Helen in a moment. But I just want to ask you this question, because it's the one that possibly is at the heart of this, but I find it quite hard to conceptualise it. Is the difficulty here that the UK sovereign parliament also has to act as the relevant English devolved, as it were, English authority on these questions? Because you hinted it just there that the difference is that the UK Parliament is also making rules for England because there is no separate entity to make rules for England. England does not have a parliament. Its parliament is the UK Parliament. And that possible incoherence at the heart of the devolution settlement, is that coming out now, finally? Is the question of English devolution finally starting to become a real issue for UK politics? Absolutely, because the EU internal market is an internal market amongst 27 sovereign states. The UK internal market is one where you've got devolved jurisdictions acting within restricted competences and then the United Kingdom Parliament as a sovereign parliament with unrestricted competence in a position to enact rules for England. So there's an 
an asymmetry in the legal powers of the constituent entities of this internal market. And of course, there's a different market power. The size of the English market is very different from the Scottish, Welsh and Northern Irish market. So there's market power at place. And this is where it's deeply ironic that we have this bill, which really does set up the possibility for quite difficult regulatory competition within the UK, which the UK government is allowing with this bill. And of course, that's exactly the concern that the EU has about the UK, that the UK will be engaging in regulatory competition with the EU. So it's very hard for the the UK government to be saying to its its EU partners, no, 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 we've got no intention to engage in regulatory competition with you. We've got high standards, we will maintain them. And yet has introduced a bill which within its own internal market has a degree of regulatory competition which the European Union tries to mediate by having harmonised rules. To put it bluntly, do you think that this puts the union at risk? I mean, if Scottish independence happens, will people look back on this as as a key marker on that road? I think it's part of, you can see it as part of a building narrative towards the elections next year. The idea of doing things differently has been really dramatised by COVID, both negatively and positively. I mean, it's there. People can see that different devolved entities do have powers, can do things differently. The SNP will be developing a narrative that will be around saying we should be able to do things different. Divergence should be possible, but we see with this this bill a restriction on that capacity to diverge in ways which undercut local democracy, local autonomy, etc. So I think you can see the way in which that narrative will be built towards the elections next year. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So we're going to pick up on some of the uh, politics of what we just discussed with Kenneth. Uh, I've got Helen Thompson and Chris Brooke with me. It's a day later. What's happened in between is Johnson, Boris Johnson gave his conference speech, his virtual conference speech yesterday, full of energy and evidence that he's not suffering from long COVID, apparently. I was very interested to see what he had to say about Brexit, because we are, as Kenneth said, in the middle of pretty high stakes negotiations. It makes a really big difference whether in the next few weeks the UK government and the EU do or don't achieve an agreement. But he had nothing to say about that. And as I missed it, I read a transcript. The only bit I could find in Boris Johnson's speech yesterday about Brexit was this one sentence, and I'm not going to try and do my Boris Johnson impression, so let's hear him say it. And I believe you will see a Britain that is more united than for decades in its constitutional settlement, where Brexit has delivered a new excitement and verve, not just free trade and free ports, but control over our fisheries and the ability to do things differently and better, from innovation in tech and data and finance to improving our standards in animal welfare. That's it. 
Um, so I'm going to break that down into two parts. That one sentence begins with, you will see a Britain that is more united than for decades in its constitutional settlement. So the implication of what Kenneth said was that, particularly in relation to the union and the various competencies of the devolved governments, the UK government, and the thing that doesn't exist, which is government for England, we are not more united. And in fact, it's pretty fragile. Does Johnson mean that? I think that what the hope for Johnson and indeed for many people in the Conservative Party is, is that if you can get through you know, the next few years, I wouldn't want to put a sort of time length upon this and stabilise the union from the present pretty immediate and in the case of Scotland, dramatic threats to it, that it will be possible to put the union on a more solid constitutional basis and perhaps have higher levels of consent to it in the long term than had been the case during the time that the United Kingdom was in the European Union. Because I think it, it has become clear, and, and I'm really talking now about Scotland rather than the Northern Irish side, that it was the UK's membership of the European Union that made it possible for there to be some kind of practical basis for a political project for Scottish independence. And the, the paradox was that the UK leaving the European Union, particularly via a referendum, and which was a straight majority vote, intensified the desire of Scottish nationalists for some form of independence, but it made it significantly more practically difficult to realise that project. And indeed, you could argue, in fact, I certainly would argue, that the whole issue of the EU in relation to EU membership in relationship to a, the currency question had already played a pretty significant part in what happened in the 2014 referendum on um, Scottish independence. So I think that that's one set of dynamics. So that if you look at it from the medium to long term, from the Conservatives' perspective, that in time, if Brexit is secured, that will make reduce the threat from Scottish nationalists. And there was obviously some of that dynamic that played out in the 2017 general election. The problem for the Conservatives is that in the short term, particularly I would say under Boris Johnson's leadership, not just of the Conservative Party, but obviously of the UK government, that, it, as I said, increases the desire for independence amongst many in Scotland and that that has then been amplified by what's happened during the pandemic. I think the separate issue then is about Northern Ireland. And the reason why that is, I think, a different issue is, is because of the Northern Ireland Protocol, the Withdrawal Treaty, the place that Northern Ireland played in the negotiations between the EU and the UK government that led to the withdrawal agreement eventually being passed. And the fact that Northern Ireland still goes to the heart of the impossibility at the moment of getting past the different positions of the British government, the UK government, I should say, and on the EU on a on a future trade relationship. And then if there is no trade agreement come the end of the year, then Northern Ireland becomes, from the point of view of the Conservative government, a means by which EU law can still have effect on in the UK via Northern Ireland, and that is what they have been trying to resist. I'd say the third then dynamic that comes about is, is well, what do you do when you get these powers back from the that were previously at the European Union? Who possesses them? The UK government or the devolved governments? And obviously, the UK government would like them 
back at UK level because the view of the Conservatives is that in partly in administrative terms as much as anything else that the union has become too decentralised. The view in Edinburgh, Cardiff is obviously radically different than that. And then all these issues, and I'd say that this applies to all three of the levels I've been talking about, have been aggravated again by the fact that the nature of the pandemic and the fact that we've had to have emergency executive government means that we now have a functioning English government, even though constitutionally there shouldn't be one, and de facto it has to be the UK government. So then that makes the relations between Westminster, Edinburgh, Cardiff and Belfast even more difficult than they would all, or, or, than they already were. Okay, and I want to bring in Chris in a second to ask about some of the wider politics of this. But on that last point, because Kenneth brought it up too, and I think it's, I mean, I find it quite hard to think it through. Can you identify the absolutely central difficulty of a, a constitutional settlement, as John, Johnson called it, which now seems to imply that there both is and isn't this thing called an English government? Why is that so potentially problematic in the well, short, medium and long term? You have to separate this out into to two questions. One is a, a constitutional question and one is a is a matter of electoral politics. I think if you go back to what happened in 2014 after the Scottish referendum and the vow, you know, that more authority was going to be devolved to Scotland, Cameron came out that morning after the referendum and said that went hand in hand with doing something about the constitutional arrangements for England. And that led to a change. It led to English votes for English laws was passed after the 2015 general election, as I recall. And that basically put in a safeguard against the possibility that a non-English majority of MPs could vote laws for England that applied only to England because of the devolution in that area to the other parts of the United Kingdom. So that was seen as something that was a bit muddled, but it at least acknowledged the parliamentary legislative problem. The difficulty the pandemic's created is that we now see that we have an English vacuum at the level of the executive. So when the executive is using effectively emergency powers and taking decisions as an executive in, say, health and education, and lockdowns and restrictions, etc., There is nothing that can act as that English government, as that executive, but the UK executive. And the more then that the Scottish government, the Welsh government, the Northern Irish government and the UK government acting as the English government disagree with each other about what the pandemic rules should be, or indeed the education aspects of it, the more that the fact that there is an English government comes visibly to the surface. I think it then becomes an electoral you know, issue as well, because, I mean, let's just say for the sake of argument that we had had a general election which had led to a minority Labour government supported by the SNP in some sort of tacit form. It, I don't think it would have been a, a formal coalition. And then that was the government that was now acting with emergency powers as the English executive without having anything like a majority of English seats that would be a pretty big political problem. I mean, at the moment, that aspect of it doesn't come into play because we have a Conservative government. But it will come into play once the Conservatives aren't any longer the majority power at Westminster. Obviously, at some point, that will be the case. So you have to find some means by which we're going to have 
constitutional executive government for England that takes account of electoral results in England as that applies to devolved matters that might be subject to executive decision making. That will indeed come to happen at some point unless we get Scottish independence first. Mm. So Chris, to take it back to Brexit, because the other side of what Johnson said yesterday was, I mean, he didn't talk at all, unless again, unless I missed it about the negotiations, he didn't talk about the possibility of deals or no deals. He just talked about this vision he has of a Britain, of a UK that is able to innovate, that can set its own rules, all the things that are actually at issue in the negotiations. So what do you think is at stake for him? I mean, was he avoiding it? What is at stake for him over the next few weeks and months in relation to the possibility either of or of not getting a Brexit deal? Because, and again, we talked to Kenneth about this, the stakes are still as high as they were a year ago, and yet the political heat has gone out of it, but it could come back. So what I'm struck by looking at that passage of Boris Johnson's speech is that it's just a grab bag of things that we believe resonate with certain parts of the current Conservative coalition. So we begin with free trade and free ports. Well, sure, some people had this fantasy that Brexit would be about the kind of, you know, almost zero tariff trade with the rest of the world and free ports. Rishi Sunak, before he became Chancellor, was one of the people who published a pamphlet banging on about how a a move to to free ports would be an important part of the future international trade stance of Britain. Then we've got the mention of control over fisheries. That pushes the button of conservative English nationalists who are getting particularly het up about fisheries, even though fishing is an absolutely tiny part of the economy. It fades into insignificance behind the car industry, for example, when it comes to goods that we trade internationally. But fisheries seem to have this totemic significance for a certain kind of little Englander. And then we have the ability to do things differently and better from innovation in tech and data and finance. That's a reference to the Dominic Cummings obsession, which is the idea that um, you can shovel vast sums of public money into the pockets of particular tech firms that you've decided are going to be the next British Google. And the government doesn't like the European Union's ostentatious dislike of this kind of approach to state aid. And then finally, we get the reference to improving our standards of animal welfare. And that's the thing that associated with the conservatism, for example, of Michael Gove, that from time to time over the last decade, the conservatives have advertised an interest in using the departure from the European Union to strengthen rather than to weaken protections of the natural environment and protections of wildlife and so on and so on. So When you listen to Boris Johnson, I don't think there's a serious plan here at all. The closest he comes to a serious plan probably is with his reference to Dominic Cummings' ideas. But one thing we know about Dominic Cummings is that he's deeply unpopular in the wider Conservative Party. Conservative MPs really, really don't like him. He's only a powerful person because he has the very strong backing of the Prime Minister and so what I'm struck by by that Johnson speech is that it doesn't have a coherent centre to it. It isn't a plausible vision of life in Britain after Brexit. In fact, he says nothing about the constitutional settlement. What I've just referred to isn't about constitutionalism. Johnson is in crisis mode. He's going from deadline to deadline. He's going from crisis to crisis, from meeting to meeting. He's saying what he can say on each occasion just to get through to the next stage of the political game. And I think that's what he's doing there. That's what he's doing in that speech. So while taking on board everything that Helen has said about the difficulties associated with Scottish independence, with um, the idea of an independent Scotland, especially when it comes to currency issues, 
I agree that those were a difficulty for the nationalists in the referendum of a few years ago. And I agree that the Conservatives have benefited to some extent insofar as they've become the kind of de facto party of the union in Scotland, that the weakening of Scottish Labour, I think, has meant that if you want to strike an unambiguously unionist pose in Scotland, the Conservative and Unionist Party is a better vehicle for that than the enfeebled remains of Scottish Labour. But having said that, you know, what we know is that the referendum a few years ago was defeated by 55 to 45. Scots voted to remain a part of the union. But we know that there's been a substantial and sustained shift in public opinion since then, that all recent opinion polls show well over half of Scottish voters in favour of independence. And the Conservatives will denounce that and praise the union and talk about the importance of singing Rule Britannia on the last night of the proms and do all these things and, and wave their flags a lot more. They'll do that. But there doesn't seem to me to be any serious evidence of political thinking, constitutional thinking, of thinking about what the relationship between England and Scotland or Scotland and the United Kingdom might be after Brexit over the medium term, assuming that the union can be kept together. Um, this is a politics of crisis. And um, Johnson, I don't think, has any coherent vision except a strongly felt preference that he'd like Scotland to remain part of the union. But that's the question on which a majority of Scots now appear to disagree with him. And Helen, on that list that Chris went through, that you know that wish list of things that Johnson would like to be true and various bits of the Conservative coalition would like to be true, but not the same bits. As I said, that's what's being negotiated now. I mean, the reason we don't yet have an agreement is because they can't agree about fisheries. They can't agree about a level playing field for state aid. They can't agree about some of the trade implications of this. So this is what he says his government is going to do. Is it reasonable? And he's, he has said this more explicitly, just not yesterday, to take from that that he's going to do it. And if the price of that is that there can't be a deal, so be it. Because he's if this is crisis politics, he's in the middle of a crisis over these exact questions. And not to have a deal with the European Union in the next weeks and months will deepen the crisis. It will, it will over Northern Ireland on that matter, I agree. And, and that is why the internal market bill comes into play, because that is, seems to me, trying to not cover up for the weakness in the UK's position, but sort of intention anyway, signal to the, the EU that they're not prepared to let Northern Ireland be the reason why they have to give in about state aid or fisheries either of them, I think, for that matter. But the dynamic particularly comes out in relation to Northern Ireland through the, the state aid issue. I mean, I would suggest that there was a sort of theme that went beyond the immediate crisis to Johnson's speech, and that actually was energy. And I think that you can see that the way he wants to use energy and wind power in particular as part of the levelling up agenda that he was committed to before the party ran on in some sense or became a response to what happened in the general election, that building that kind of energy infrastructural capacity, which is a monumental change that needs to take place to move away from fossil fuels, is an agenda that he seems very much to have embraced. He now seems very keen on hydrogen energy. I think you can see that this stuff appeals to what we thought of as the old Boris Johnson, you know, like big infrastructural projects on which lots of money can be spent and they sound 
transformative. Some of them obviously in, in practice in terms of his earlier career don't turn out to, to be like that. But this is a lot more serious in this sense is that the energy revolution is with us. And he, I think, was trying in that speech to tie the Conservatives' electoral coalition to a project around that. I think that the difficulty in terms of the immediate crisis around the negotiations is that it's not possible, I think, for Boris Johnson-led Conservative government to budge that much either on fisheries or on state aid without the EU making a move of comparable size. Now, I think that they're well aware that the consequences then in terms of the union, both on the Northern Irish question, which then involves them having to try to effectively act outside parts of the withdrawal agreement and the likely reaction to there not being a trade agreement in Scotland are problematic. Though I would say that on the fishery side, that is a Scottish issue as well as an English issue. And this has got to be navigated in the context, as Chris said, of the fact that the Scottish Parliament elections are coming up in the middle of next year. But regardless of the difficulties that the union poses for the absence of a a trade agreement, given the EU's position at the moment, I, I don't see how we can unilaterally move. Both sides can come down a bit. But if the EU's position remains that essentially the status quo has to remain in place around state aid and fishing. There isn't going to be a trade agreement. Chris, do you think if there isn't an agreement, uh, Keir Starmer's position would have to shift and Brexit will have to come back to being a central question of Westminster politics? Keir Starmer's tried to park it. But in the absence of a deal, would the Labour Party have to return to the battle and make opposition to the government's Brexit policy central, do you think? I think it's very difficult because I don't think Starmer wants to head in that direction. I don't think there's a great deal of appetite in the Labour Party for making Brexit an absolutely central issue. So my guess, my instinct would be that what Labour will be interested in isn't so much the abstract question of has there been a deal or not, but looking at the concrete effects on the ground. Has Kent been turned into a giant lorry park? Is unemployment spiralling? Have the living standards of big chunks of the population begun to slide precipitously. And that can all feed into the general attack on uh, the government that Starmer's been making consistently for months now about incompetence, about the government's inability to do the basic work of governing the country and maintaining standards of living and maintaining the, the welfare of the population and so on. And it'll remain the case that even if things go very, very badly in the new year, that the United Kingdom will no longer have been a member of the EU for over a year. I mean, that's the truth behind the Conservative claim that, as it were, Brexit has happened. And you can stop using the word Brexit because the United Kingdom is no longer a member of the European Union. And we may see over the months and years to come a focused politics urging a reapplication for membership. In fact, I'd be surprised if you look forward a decade or two, I'd be surprised if there isn't a significant movement outside the Conservative Party pushing for the United Kingdom to make an application, a renewed application for membership of the European Union. And that seems to me a, a likely consequence of the of the future. But I don't think we're going to have the Labour Party tearing itself to pieces in public around the question of whether that should become an urgent absolute priority for the for the Labour Party as part of its platform for opposing the government. 
Labour seems committed to a strategy of arguing that the Conservative Party is radically unsuited to governing the country at the present time, and it's time for new people to take take over and try to deal with the multiple crises besetting the United Kingdom. So I don't think the failure to secure a deal will have a transformation of the politics of Brexit in that sense. I think we'll see Labour trying to capitalise on the idea that failure to achieve a deal is a symptom of everything they've been saying about the government for the last six months. So on the other side then, for for both of you, there's still got to be a reasonable possibility that there will be a deal. The EU on the whole tends to reach deals rather than not. If there is, I mean, that is a challenge to Labour strategy, because if not reaching a deal is evidence of incompetence, maybe reaching a deal is evidence of competence could and Johnson is in trouble no question the Tory press are definitely pushing the line that he may not have that much longer left in office and yesterday's speech was designed to show primarily vim and vigor and bounce and tigerishness and all that but if he does reach a deal if his government reaches a deal could he reset his government could that be the thing that allows him to start again yeah, I'm not sure that it really does in the sense that we're talking about something that in terms of the actual agreement that would, if it were positive, be achieved, is quite minimal. It basically is an agreement about trade and in goods. It leaves quite a lot of things out. They decided early on before the negotiations began, they didn't want to negotiate a security partnership as part of this future relations you should talk. It's not going to end the question at all in my mind of like what the UK's relationship with the European Union over the next few decades is going to be. I think you can say it's, it might be in terms of party crisis management, one less thing to worry about, not least because it was clear that the internal market bill did induce quite significant opposition within the parliamentary Conservative Party. And the last thing I think that Johnson wants on top of everything else is trying to deal with internal party management about Brexit. But achieving the trade agreement, if if it were achieved, doesn't do anything to deal with the pandemic problems. It doesn't do anything to deal with the union in particular. And time will start moving on pretty quickly then to when we get into the the Scottish parliamentary elections. And I I think this issue of of Johnson's leadership and that do come together because this is a slightly crude way of putting it, but you could say is like Theresa May was better at, dealing with the union and not very good at dealing with Brexit, it turned out. And that's kind of captured in the 2017 election result, which was sort of relatively good for the union with Scotland and bad for Brexit's prospects. And then the 2019 election is the opposite way around. Johnson was good for pushing Brexit over the line, but the Scottish Nationalists did much better in 2019 uh, than they did in 2017. And it does seem that Johnson's personality and its track record is actually a, a liability where the, the union's concerned. So I think you can kind of like see that there's there's obviously some discontent within the Parliamentary Conservative Party, or at least that looks like from the, the outside about how on top of things Johnson is. And then there's the structural issue, if you like, that there are better people perhaps to lead the Conservative Party in dealing with the Scottish question than Boris Johnson. Chris, do you think, I mean, this is a blunt question, but do you think that the, the rumblings that Johnson may well not be here in 12 months time are just rumblings or do you think he really is you know that his speech yesterday was and and all of the fake or real vim and vigor in it is evidence that he's someone who genuinely thinks that um 
he's got a serious challenge to see off to remaining prime minister. I think he is in a pretty weak position, and I think things may change very badly for him very quickly. I think that partly because, you know, we always used to say that the Conservative MPs were unlikely to put Johnson in a position where he could become leader because he was very unlikely to finish in the top two of a ballot among Conservative MPs. He wasn't very popular among Conservative MPs. Now, he may be a bit more popular now because he's delivered Brexit and he's won an election and some of the people he, who opposed him have been forced out of the party and they've been replaced by people who feel some obligation to him as a result of the election result perhaps. But it's still the case that we know that an awful lot of Conservative MPs, especially those who've been around for more than a couple of parliamentary terms, have traditionally had very mixed feelings about him. We know that he has delivered on what he said he would deliver when he became Prime Minister. That's to say he'd deliver Brexit, he'd get the election and he'd beat Jeremy Corbyn. He's done all three of those things. And it's perfectly reasonable in that circumstance for Conservative MPs to say, yep, you know, you did what we hired you to do. And now we would like to have someone more congenial. We know that uh, aspects of his rule, the fact that he's palpably not on top of things from time to time, the fact that he leans so much on the deeply unpopular figure of Dominic Cummings, helps to alienate him from his parliamentary supporters. People also say there are aspects about promotion, the way that Johnson doesn't sack ministers, he rewards people who have some pretty severe black marks against them because he's particularly invested in a particular clique in the parliamentary party. And another thing we know, looking further back, is that the last time the Conservatives won a general election with a substantial majority was Margaret Thatcher winning by 100 in 1987. And she was out before the end of that parliamentary term. She was evicted from office in the very dramatic internal machinations in the Conservative Party in 1989 to 1990. The Conservative Party doesn't have a tradition of rewarding those who win elections with long-term stable loyalty. So having said all that, you know, I do think Johnson's in a weak position or in a position that could become indefensible very fast if the Parliamentary Conservative Party turn against him. Having said that, what we're not seeing from the press is a focus on whether the chair of the 1922 committee is receiving letters from Conservative backbenchers. The Conservatives do have their system for challenging a leader, which requires MPs to submit letters calling for a vote of confidence to the 1922 committee, which they can do anonymously. I mean, that's to say only the chair of the committee, I think, who reads those letters knows who it is who's calling for a leadership ballot. And the press hasn't got interested in that question. We're not seeing a focus on how there are actual rumblings of disloyalty that are turning into initiating the process whereby he might be replaced as leader. I also think it's significant that it's not at all obvious what direction the Conservative Party would go in were they to replace him as leader. None of Jeremy Hunt or Rishi Sunak or Michael Gove seem to me to be obvious replacement leaders waiting in the wings. Sunak would probably have the strongest chance if there were an election right now. But again, there'd be a complicated politics and they might end up with someone very different. So I think the politics are complicated and we're not actually seeing concrete actions being taken against Boris Johnson by Conservatives just yet. But as I contemplate his position, it doesn't seem to be a strong one. And what we have structurally baked into Brexit and the way the Conservative Party have handled Brexit is that way that 
it becomes very easy for the Brexit ultras to present Brexit as this kind of pure heroic crusade, any any detraction from which is a betrayal and is evidence of being a traitor and so on and so on. And as soon as Johnson's name is on a withdrawal agreement with the EU, he becomes vulnerable to that critique that not so much that he's delivered Brexit, but that he's sold out to the EU and he's sold out to its fisheries regime and he's sold out to its state aid rules. And he becomes vulnerable to the the so-called Spartans of the European research group. And we know that they have the ear of the press, they have the ear of the Tory grassroots, and they have a certain amount of support in the parliamentary party. So I'm one of those who believes that Johnson hasn't really got over his illness and is in structurally a very weak position. But I agree that there's not much evidence yet of facing active internal opposition from within the Conservative Party. And and the other historical parallel is Anthony Eden, who won an election, increased the Conservative majority, I think, from 17 to 60 and was gone uh, a couple of years later. And it was his health that, I mean, it was serious, but it was his health that was the lever to get him out. And I think you can see why Johnson is so absolutely determined to show that he has not got long COVID, because if he has, they will get rid of him. And if he hasn't, they've got to get rid of him some other way. We shall see. Regular listeners will remember, I think, that Kenneth Armstrong has a really excellent blog about Brexit. We will put the link to that in our show notes and, as always, on Twitter at tppodcast underscore. Since we recorded our episode last week about Trump, the debate, the US election, I don't need to tell you that a lot has happened. We're going to come back to American politics next week and beyond. There is so much to talk about. We will try and get to as much of it as we can. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. The the UK has launched the, these infringement proceedings, and there are very structured. Sorry, you said the UK. You mean the EU? Oh, sorry. I always get that wrong. <laughs> UK and the EU. I love it. It doesn't matter. Just switch switch them around. I make this mistake all the time. Um, oh, we have to leave that in. Yeah.